Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're wrapping up another mini-series from our year-long study from the book of Matthew, and we'll be taking a look at a case study on the topic of divorce. Before we get to this week's message, we want to recognize that this subject carries a lot of pain and shame for so many of us, and it is truly our hope that in listening to this message this week, we'll both have a better understanding of Jesus' teaching on this subject and that we would all find some grace and some hope for the future. And so now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as he helps us to understand what Jesus was really getting at when he was confronted by the Pharisees on the subject of divorce. In the Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Over the course of 2022, we are working our way passage by passage through the life of Jesus as told by his disciple Matthew. And uh, it's our commitment that we were going to go through uh, as many of the passages as we can um, over the course of a year, but we were not going to leave out any of the tough ones. And so this morning, for the next, uh, we'll see how, I'll try to do it in 40 minutes. We'll see if that works. But uh, we're, we're going to be specifically looking at what Jesus says about divorce. Divorce. To say that this was one that I was looking forward to is a lie. Um, this was a subject that, I, I'm admittedly, I, I always get a bit nervous coming in on a Sunday morning. There's a, there's a, a weight to this always, a, a holy weight to, to teach the gospel. But, um, but this one, uh, honestly, I was more nervous than I have been uh, to preach a sermon. I am more nervous even right now than I have been in a long time. And so um, th- there just feels like there's a weight on this one. Uh, I asked you last week, many of you... Uh, I asked last week if you could be praying over this particular subject, and uh, thank you for your prayers. A lot of you reached out, and I know others of you were praying, and you didn't tell me, but I, I, I know you were, and I feel those, and I thank you. Um, the, the weight for me on the subject of divorce is I am well aware that all of us at some level, for some of you at like a very personal level, others, we watched it from a distance, but all of us have been personally impacted by divorce. And uh, there is a very real pain that I know is in the room right now, a very real pain. Uh, I know we're not just talking in theory this morning. Um, there, uh, I also understand that there may be some marriages that are here right now, and COVID's been hard, life has been hard, and you're in this space right now, and it hasn't been easy for you. And I, uh, I feel the weight, the weight of talking about this at all, like it, it intensifies some of that. Um, there are some weeks where a, uh, a bad joke just makes me look like a bad joke teller. And uh, then there are other weeks where you realize that, that there, is a, there is a risk that one bad line or one bad joke could do significant damage, significant damage. And I, uh, as I was putting this whole thing together, uh, I just want you to know that I acknowledge that. I'll, I'm gonna do my best. I've worked really hard to, on the language in this one and try to think through like all the turns in this one more than, more than most even. Um, but I also just want to acknowledge I will likely fail at some point. Like I, I will likely fail. Um, and I just want to apologize on the front end for that. Um, it's not intentional, I promise. But uh, I think when it comes to subjects like this, we all see the subject of divorce through the lens of our own pain. So we all see it tinted through the lens of our experience and our unique pain and um, and I understand that some, some, of, some of you went through divorces and you had your hearts broken and you went to your church, hopefully not this, this one, but you went to your church hoping for some help 
And what you got back was this sense of, of shame and guilt. And you went to your church. Um, Jesus has this brilliant line about trying to help us understand what God, God the Father is like. And he says, uh, which of us, if, or which of you, if your kid were to ask you for bread, would hand your kid a stone? Some of you needed bread in a season where your soul was hungry and the faith community like threw stones at you. And what you come through the doors this morning with is, I really hope he says something to acknowledge that. And I really actually hope, Pastor Tim, please say something that acknowledges the shame that I, I was made to feel. You hope I say that. And honestly, hear me, I hope I talk through that too. Um, others, uh, you were the victim of a spouse who didn't love you well. Uh, some of you, you, you were in a marriage and you... You, uh, you let them have your heart, and they did, not, they did not hold that heart lovingly. They did not hold that heart uh, carefully, and you're left with the pieces of it all. Um, and, and you're really hoping that this morning what I say is that I, that I don't give them a free pass. You're really hoping that I, we acknowledge that what they did was wrong, what they did was not okay, it was not of God, and that we don't just say, well, grace abounds, and that was fine. You're really hoping, don't, don't take the heat off entirely because it's really important that they acknowledge what they did. Um, I, hope I, say, I hope I do that. I hope I say that too. Uh, some of you are in, um, you went through a divorce and then you were remarried, and uh, and. I've heard this a number of times where people will say, yeah, we acknowledge that we didn't do it well in our first marriage. We acknowledge that if we would have been different in that first marriage, things would have probably gone differently. But it's, it's in the past. We can't, we can't undo that. Um, but we are now, we found somebody new and we're getting it right. We're getting it right. Like it's better now. We're happy now. And what you're really hoping is that I don't take that happiness and that joy and, and that new start and like pour water on it. And I hope I don't do that too. Um, some of you are, uh, are children of parents who went through divorce and a mom and dad could not figure it out. And so um, something happens in the brain of a kid, I think, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, I, I think what often happens to, to children is we can begin to believe that this must be our fault. Kids, you must, this must be our fault. Often what I think can happen is mom and dad uh, so they, you do something that was wrong and they discipline you like any loving parent does and then you find out they're, they're going through a divorce and kids can accidentally link those two, two things, right? Like they can think, oh, if I would have been good over here, mom and dad would not have gone through this. So it must have been my fault and they're just not acknowledging that because they love me, but it's actually my fault that they went through this. And if, if you are an adult, now as an adult, you kind of can think through it. Maybe you went through it, and you, as an adult, you're like, that, I know that that's not what happened, and yet something happens in the psyche when, as kids, we link these two things and think, this is somehow my fault, or I could have fixed it. I could have worked harder. I could have been a better listener, a better kid. Um, if that's you, I hear me clearly on this. Um, uh, if you feel like collateral damage in the midst of a divorce, I hope this morning, the Spirit of our God would speak personally to you. Um, I could go on and on with example after example. What I've learned is that every divorce is a little bit different. Every relationship is a little bit different. And to treat them all as the exact same thing is not helpful. Um, I think we all, when it comes to this subject, 
approach the scriptures and see the world through the lens of that pain. And if we just don't acknowledge that on the front end, I think we're, we end up mishearing each other. It's complicated and it's messy, and I do not want to pretend like I'm going to give easy answers to what is complex situations. Um, but as, a, as I wrestled through this, I thought, okay, well, what is the right tactic? How do we approach this one? How do we talk about this one? And um, I, I studied and prayed. I studied the, the, the stuff, and I prayed that question again and again over the last several months. In fact, uh, the books were coming in right around November. All these books were coming in on um, divorce and remarriage and divorce. And my wife's like, <laughs> Amazon's been here a lot. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the more I, I really want to get my head around the theology of this thing, because I think, honestly, the, the place that we, we may be helpful uh, in this whole conversation is, um, I think, behind a lot of our pain when it comes to the subject of divorce is somebody speaking words of God or from God or words about God that uh, treated what is complex as a really simple solution. Just do this. Just do this. And uh, the, the, the language we have for words about God are theology. That, that's what that means, literally, theology. Many of us are victims of... Um, of bad theology. And, uh, and there's one passage in particular, and it's the passage that we are looking at this morning, that often is uh, the passage that gets quoted. It's of Jesus. It gets quoted when it comes to the advice we've heard on this thing. And some of that advice is good. Some of that advice is helpful. Others of that advice has not been all that helpful. So what I want to do in the time we have uh, it, this morning is I want to take that passage. I want to study it. I want to try to figure out what Jesus is getting at in the passage. We want to do our best to actually think through what is the text about, turn it over, try to find new insights into it, and, uh, and then we can take it and come back to our context and say, okay, what does this mean for us? Um, but, but as I wrestled through this, what I, I'm just more and more convinced of is that at the root of a lot of this, even if we could say the words uh, that would help us know that we are loved by each other, if we don't also deal with the... Uh, yeah, but I might be twisting the words of Jesus just to make myself feel better. If we don't deal with that, those of us who want to follow Jesus, there's nothing worse than thinking that we may accidentally be twisting Scripture so that we feel better about ourselves. So we have to get at that. So um, to do that, let's, let's look at the passage that has been the cause of so many headaches and heartaches. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 31. It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's, that's it. That's the whole thing. Um, now, at, at first read, let's be honest, that feels crystal clear. right? It feels like not a lot of wiggle room in that. Very black and white. And it often gets treated as such. Very black and white. Very crystal clear. It doesn't feel like Jesus says... Anything except sexual immorality or adultery is considered, it's not a valid, it's not grounds for a divorce. Anything except for that, it feels really clear. Until you start thinking about it. Like, but what about, what about, um, what about abuse? I uh, have a vivid memory of talking to a woman whose husband hit her. And when I say he hit her, I mean he beat her. And when I say he beat her, she told me that she would often not remember the moment because he would hit her so hard she blacked out. And yet, this, this woman loved God, and her, she was terrified because as far as she knew, she, he didn't have an affair. He's not committing, an, he's not, there's no other woman. 
And so she was terrified that she could not leave him because there is no adultery. Um, He's abusive, but he's not having, there's no adultery. And so she stayed in a marriage for years where he beat her. But that can't be what Jesus meant, right? It can't be. Um, But what about, uh, there was a movement in the 90s, uh, an influential pastor and an influential movement that essentially said, uh, took this passage and said, okay, anything except for adultery is, um, is not valid reasons. And if you've been remarried, you're committing adultery. It seems like that's what Jesus is saying. So what this, this movement said was, if you've been remarried, it's not actually a real, in the eyes of God, it's not a real marriage. And so you should leave that spouse and go back to your first spouse. And you can think about the damage that would cause, right? Um, that can't be what Jesus is suggesting, right? Um, or what about the spouse who, who fought for the marriage and he left her. They fought for the marriage. Uh, she, she didn't want it. She didn't ask for it, but it happened. I actually was talking to someone um, once, and uh, this, was, this was her story. She had fought for the marriage to work, and then she was convinced, again, because she loved God and she took the scripture very seriously, she, she was convinced that she could not get remarried until he remarried. Because as far as she know, he wasn't, he wasn't sexually active, he wasn't remarried. And so if that's true, then if she were to move first, she would be committing, she would be committing adultery. And that's not, she can't. So she felt like she was stuck in life because she had to wait for him to move on, even though he left her. She didn't have a say in it. That can't be what Jesus is getting at, Right? But what about, we could go on and on with the whatabouts, right? We could go on and on and on with example after example. In fact, the earliest Christians, our Christian heritage is, it shows example after example of people who love God, love the scriptures, wrestling with the but whatabouts of life. Um, all the way back, and you can go on and on and on. Almost every, uh, every pastor at some level has wrestled with this. But it's black and white. It's very crystal clear. Except, apparently it's not. Apparently, it's not. Um, how about this one? How about this, but what about? Jesus, in literally the same breath, Jesus, right before he talks about divorce, he says these words. He says, you have, heard, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he goes on and he talks about you cannot divorce except for uh, a, a sexual morality, which is adultery. Any decent lawyer could turn Jesus' words on, on themselves, right? They could just say, well, hang on. Uh, if she looked at him lustfully, that, count, that counts as an affair. That counts as adultery, according to Jesus. And so that's grounds for divorce. But that can't be what Jesus is getting at, right? Like, we, we know this. Uh, here's my point. Though on the surface it may seem like what Jesus is saying is black and white, crystal clear, there's no, no wiggle room, no cut, it's cut and dry, um, something in us knows, something in us knows that this is more complex. There's like something in you that's like, no, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more. Now, sometimes that voice is a liar, and we've got to say, you're lying to me. You're trying to, you're trying to get me to do stupid things. But sometimes that voice is the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, keep digging. There may be more. You may be missing out on what Jesus is actually trying to communicate. I want to argue that I think the second is true in this case. I think there's more. I mean, I don't think until we fully understand this passage of what Jesus is saying about divorce, we will not fully understand, like, until we put it into its context, how do we approach this subject when it's 
our family members, our kids, our parents, our, ourselves in these shoes? How do we do it? So um, a fair warning here. Uh, as much as a sermon on divorce should live here in the heart, uh, for what I'm going to share with you in the next few moments is going to be very heady. Um, I got to share a bunch of content with you because I want to set this passage free, at least put it in its context. And uh, the word I used in the first service is I got to need about 15 minutes, and that's going fast, but I'm going to need about 15 minutes, and I'm going to really bore you, and I apologize. I'm going to really bore you, and, uh, and that's kind of intentional because I need you to see that this is more complex, um, but it's going to be a bit boring. Um, but for those of us who have had the words of Jesus weaponized on us, maybe maybe helpful is my hope. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew 5 is, feels cut and dry, but uh, Matthew 5 uh, that's the section plays out in a context of a conversation. The conversation is actually really helpful to understanding what is going on. Matthew 19 is a conversation about divorce. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the, the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now let's pause there. Um, first notice that the group that's questioning is a group of people known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious, they're the religious people of the day. They're the, the ultra-Orthodox religious folk. They love the Bible, and yet they're looking for a loophole here. We know that because um, their question is essentially, what does the law permit? They want to test him, is what we said. The question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That question is a test. Now, what's the test? Let me take you deep into the weeds on this, and we'll see if we can figure out what the test is. What's the test? Now, um, first, just notice the sentence. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Just first notice the obvious thing in the, in the, the sentence. They only ask about whether it's lawful for a man to divorce. That should catch us. Now, for years, my assumption was they only ask about a man because women culturally weren't allowed to divorce. That was my assumption, was that women must not be allowed to, to, to file for divorce. It's a patriarchal culture. That would make sense. But it turns out that that's not true. Women, according to the Jewish legal system, could, the Jewish courts ensured that a woman could have grounds for divorce and could file for, what we would use language of file for divorce or offer a certificate or a get, they called it, for divorce. Women could do that, but they never did. Why didn't they do it? Because culturally, even though legally they could, culturally, it was a death sentence. Men had jobs. Men could make money. Men could, men could remarry. But for women, uh, culturally, uh, we only know of two examples in all of Jewish history, uh, ancient Jewish history, in which women went first. They petitioned first. Why didn't they do it more often? I, I love how Dallas Willard um, uh, great theologian, how he unpacks this. He says, essentially, you have three options. If, if you're female and you get divorced, there are three options for you. Option number one, you can move back with your family and, uh, and you would bring all of the shame onto your family. We all were at the wedding. We know what happened. All of that onto your family. Option number two, you could find a new husband. But the new husband, um, I don't know how to say this as a Christian. Uh, I'll just say it this way. You know, there are dirt bags in our culture. There were dirt bags then too. 
And, uh, and there were guys that would look for these women who they know, knew that they could exploit and use, and they would call themselves married to them, but they could exploit them and use them because they knew they had no other option. That was option two. And option three, which is sadly the best option, and it's an awful option, was you become a prostitute. That was it. That's your options. You can move on. You can maybe, get, maybe your family takes you back. Maybe, maybe you, you live with a guy... That's your options. Men could, men could move on. Men could remarry. Men could get another job or keep moving. Um, so, so essentially, we have a system here that is robbing women of all of their integrity and worth and treating them as though they are property. That's, but that is not the test. That's not the test. That's the assumption. The assumption is it's only men that are going to file for divorce. Why would women do it? They've got no other options. It's only men. The assumption's there. That's not the test. What's the test? What's the test? Can we divorce her for any and every reason, they ask? Uh, what does the law permit? Now, if this question was asked 50 years before this moment, the answer to that question, can we divorce for any and every reason, the answer, to, everyone would agree, was no. 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 Up until 40 or 50 years prior to this moment, every Jewish person who believed in the scriptures understood that there were four biblical reasons why you could get a divorce. There were four. Three of them come out of a passage of, out of Exodus. Exodus 21 uh, is a series of laws that God puts in place to protect slaves. Um, someday we'll talk a lot about the slavery culture. It, uh, God hates it too. I, but like, understand, 4,000 years ago, um, when you conquered a people group and you took somebody on as a slave, uh, that they essentially, you can marry them. But what God understood was that you could accidentally treat them like property. And that needs to be cautioned against. So for an ancient culture trying to protect slaves, um, God puts in place, essentially, if you marry somebody who is a slave and then you find somebody else that you like better, you can't just send her away empty-handed. So what God says is, uh, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Um, uh, food, clothing, and marital rights. Essentially what they said was, if this applies to a female slave, it applies to all females. And if it applies to all females, it must apply to all men too. So it applies for all people in all marriages. These three things, food, Clothing and marital rights. We're in the weeds. Are you with me? Okay, we're in the weeds. But it's, I think it's important. Um, food, clothing, and marital rights. Now, two of those, they said, were about meeting the needs of a person now. Food and clothing were about making sure you were protected and cared for now. Marital rights, or as they would understand it, uh, sexual intercourse, was about providing for the needs later. Why? Well, uh, in our day and age, um, if we get old and we can't care for ourselves in our old age, there are options. There's nursing homes. There are options. But in their day and age, if you don't have kids, like who takes care of you when you're old? So what God says is you have to provide food, you have to provide clothing, and you have to give them the opportunity to have kids. If you cut these three things off, it's considered abuse and neglect, and as bad as it is, as, as shame... As hard as it is to dissolve that marriage, that, a marriage of abuse and neglect, you can absolve that marriage. That one, that, it's not of God. 
So that's actually the first three. That's the first three. The fourth one, they all assumed, the fourth reason that anyone could go through a divorce, was, or the passage that talked about divorce, was Deuteronomy 24. This is what Deuteronomy 24 says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and it goes on and on. Um, but just, just notice, if a woman becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, what does that mean? Now, that's the debate of Jesus' day. This is the debate. If I, if I took you in the weeds, let me take you further into the weeds before we make sense of it. Stay with me. I, I warn you, it's boring. Um, it's all right. We're going to have uh, giant sloths up on the stage later, but stay with me. Um, about 40 years before Jesus, there were two famous rabbis Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Both rabbis had disciples. Both rabbis had yokes. Remember, yoke is that word for a set of, here's how I interpret the law. Here's how I interpret Torah. Here's how we understand these rules of of God. Both had disciples. Both had yokes. On most issues of the Bible, they agreed with each other. This is what the scriptures say. This is what we're supposed to do. But there were some areas, at least eight areas, where Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai disagreed with each other. Cultural issues of their day that they said, you're reading the text wrong. Just like in our day, we have areas where we disagree in theology with each other, right? Like there's, uh, Christians don't always see the the scriptures the same on certain areas. Uh, Areas like how uh, racial relations, sexual orientation, politics, um, baptism, when do you get baptized? Some, Some of those kinds of things. They had eight of them. Hillel and Shammai disagreed on what is the greatest commandment. Uh, Rabbi Hillel and Shammai disagreed on how do we honor the Sabbath and do no work. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai disagreed on who is my neighbor. But the raging debate at the time of Jesus that predates to Hillel and Shammai 40 years earlier, the raging debate was around divorce. Divorce. And the root for that debate was this passage in in Deuteronomy 21, or 24, uh, both Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai agreed that Exodus 21 were grounds for divorce. The Bible's clear about that, they said. Food, clothing, and marital rights, that, the Bible's clear on that. Abuse and neglect have to be protected against. But Deuteronomy 24, they disagreed on. In particular, they disagreed on how to interpret two words. The two words... In English, it's something indecent or an indecent matter. In Hebrew, the words are ervat devar. Ervat devar. It's an unusual phrase. comes up only in two places in the Bible, here and in a few verses earlier than this. So not super helpful, same context. Um, it's a weird phrase. Rabbi Shammai said, ervat devar, an indecent matter, in, uh, uh, something indecent. Ervat devar, that, that word indecent, could be translated naked. A matter of nakedness. That, he said, is adultery. This law is saying adultery is grounds for divorce, according to Shammai, and nothing else. According to this passage says only that according to this passage and the three from Exodus 21. But this passage is something indecent, is adultery. Hillel said, no. That phrase, ervat devar, Those things, it's a confusing phrase because those are two words that are supposed to represent two separate ideas. You can divorce on grounds of ervat and you can divorce on grounds of devar. You can divorce on grounds of adultery 
and you can divorce on grounds of something. Something. Any matter, he said. Any matter. Shammai said, no, you're wrong in your interpretation. You're misreading this. You're not doing justice to what it's saying. You, this passage only permits divorce on the grounds of adultery. Hillel said, no, you're wrong in your interpretation. You can divorce for adultery or any matter, something. The Mishnah, a collection of Jewish writings from this day, talks through the debate. Notice what the, the Mishnah says. The school of Shammai say a man should not divorce his wife unless he found in her a matter of indecency, as it is said, for he finds in her an indecent matter, Devashavar, and Shavar. Uh, and the school of Hillel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it says, for he finds in her an indecent matter. Ravat Devar. Shammai says, Ravat Devar, cannot sep- you cannot separate the two words. It only plays out as adultery. The school of Hillel said, no, Ravat Devar means adultery or something, any matter. What came to be known as an any matter or any reason divorce. Are you following this? The debate raged on. What if she burns my toast? This is literally in the Mishnah. What if she burns my toast? Can I divorce her? Hillel says, Shammai says, no. Toast? Shammai says, yeah, you may. Rabbi Akiba, who lived right after the time of Jesus, Rabbi Akiba goes on to, he's a school of Hillel guy. He says, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it says, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. This was the debate that was raging at the time of Jesus. Who's right, Hillel or Shammai? How do you read the text? Now, to make matters stickier, to bring you further into the weeds, there was a famous divorce that happened in between Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. In that time of Jesus' life, in between, there was a famous divorce that happened. King Herod Antipas had a fling with a lady named Herodias. They both decide we like each other better than our spouse. So they, they on the grounds of, of Hillel's any matter divorce, they divorce their spouses and they get married to each other. There's a dude who, said, who rises up. He's kind of a wild man, a little bit crazy of a dude. He rises up and he says, I don't care if he's the king, that's wrong. What he did is wrong. Them divorcing is wrong. The king arrests that guy and cuts off his head. You know him as John the Baptist. Jesus, we're told in Matthew 4, is moves where he is because John the Baptist has been arrested. Why is John the Baptist arrested? Because John the Baptist dared call out the king's affair. Hillel's wrong, he said. Do you, see, do you see the drama of the whole thing? You see how it's all, all kind of connected? Now, let's go back to the question the Pharisees ask. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Do you see what they're asking? Put it in context. Do you, do you agree with Hillel? Do you agree with it? Whose side are you on? Hillel's side or are you on Shammai's side? Are any reason divorces okay? Oh, and by the way, remember, your cousin just had his cut off because you, you know, because he dared question it. Be careful, be careful. Do you see the test? Do you see the test? Now, uh, verse four, haven't you read, this is, Jesus is brilliant, and I wish we had another 20 minutes, I could unpack this one, but uh, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Now, again, it's hard, hard in the time we have to see exactly how brilliant Jesus is, but Jesus essentially takes two passages out of Genesis and he smashes them together. Gezer HaShavah is the name of the rabbinic practice. He smashes them together to say something about marriage. So while they're asking, what does the law permit? How can we divorce? It's like Jesus says, I'm not interested that, in that question. I would rather talk about why marriage exists in the first place. And then he points to two passages. He smashes them together to highlight a word. The word is, the, is a Hebrew word, echad. I won't make you say it because it's COVID. Um, echad, echad. Echad is the word that we translate here, one. They become one flesh. It was a loaded idea in the Jewish world. In fact, God said to all the Jewish people, I want you to start every day by saying the word echad, and I want you to end every day by saying the word echad. That's how big of a deal this is. Begin the day with echad and end the day with echad. In the form of a prayer, out of Deuteronomy 6, known as the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so what the Jewish people understood was that God is one, and the other time you have that word used is around a husband and wife coming together in marriage. Marriage, they said, is like a picture for what God is like. We've experienced that, right? When a marriage, when a, when a husband and wife come together out of mutual love and forgive each other. It brings a little bit of light into this dark world. Paul, in the New Testament, will double down on this and say, you want to know what Christ's love for the church is like? Find a marriage that's striving for this and you will see what Christ's love for the church is like. It's supposed to be a chad. It's supposed to be a chad. You're asking, what does the law permit so that we can get out of our, our marriage? I want to remind you of what, ma- what marriage is for. Uh, so that's where Jesus goes. Uh, the Pharisees don't like that. And uh, they come back. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Do you see what passage they want to talk about? We want to talk about Deuteronomy, Jesus. We don't want to talk about Genesis. We want the answer to Deuteronomy 24. But they sneak a word in. What does the law command? Reread the passage. The law doesn't command you get a divorce. Jesus catches it. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. He permitted it because you're, don't quit twisting scripture to justify your sin. That's essentially what he's saying here. Um, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality who, and marries another woman commits adultery. There you have it. Whose side does he take? Shemai's. Now what's really interesting in that is that this is the only time, Jesus, every other time in the eight great debates, every, and we'll look at them as we work our way through Matthew, but every other time, Jesus takes Hillel's side. But in this case, he takes Shammai's side to a culture that had grown so flippant in their marriages that if she burns my toast, Jesus says, you gotta stop treating your spouse like property. But the context, the reason I share all that, I take you way into the weeds, the context is a trap. That's the context. It's a religious trap. Uh, it's a, the context is not your neighbor comes to you and they've had their heart broken. What do you say to them? The context is not your child is going through the most awful season of their life. The context that Jesus says this is a trap. Now, um, 
Don't miss this, by the way, also. There were four reasons for divorce in their culture. Three out of Exodus, one out of Deuteronomy. Jesus doesn't comment on the other three. The assumption being that Jesus affirms the other three still. That abuse and neglect are, are grounds, not, not a requirement for divorce, but grounds for. Um, that's the assumption. Uh, in fact, the best, books on, the best book on this that I know of is uh, by David Instone Brewer. It's pretty heavy and heady, but it's, it's really interesting. Um, and we'll, I'll put it up there later. And then uh, there's a companion to it that's much more pastoral. Um, but notice what he says. He says, if Jesus had wanted to teach a rejection of the grounds for divorce in Exodus 21, 10 through 11, he would have had to say so very clearly. And if he had said nothing about them, it would have been assumed that like all other Jews, he accepted them. Which brings us to Matthew chapter five. Let me read it for you again. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, Now, remember, this is why last week we did the whole thing. It's why we took our time with that passage last week. I wanted you to see this. Remember last week's conversation. It's crucial to understanding what Jesus is doing here. Jesus gives five areas in which, so he sets, the, he sets the premise with this language of abolishing and fulfilling the law. Remember that? Um, abolishing the law was a rabbinical term. Abolishing the law didn't mean to nullify it or to ignore it. To abolish the law was to interpret the law so narrowly that it doesn't apply to you. So as long as you say, well, the law says that don't, don't murder, you could walk around with anger and hate in your heart as long as you are following the letter of the law. To abolish the law is to interpret the law so narrowly that it doesn't apply to you. Jesus gives five examples of in his world where this is happening. Murder, adultery, oaths, neighborly disputes, and divorce. And the passage he points to as an example of how this is an abolishing of the law, but I've come to show you how to live it correctly, is Deuteronomy 24. It's essentially like Jesus saying, uh, Hillel got this one wrong, guys. Hillel got it wrong. Do you see where this will, will go? If you allow Hillel's interpretation to play itself out, we will all begin to treat each other as disposable. We don't like how she looks. We don't like how he looks. We'll trade her. You are stripping, and especially in this world, you're stripping her of her dignity. You're robbing her of a future. You're forcing her to become a prostitute at best. That's her best option. And it's not a good option. It's not a godly option. I don't care if the king did it. And I don't care if he's using this Hillel argument to justify what he did. It's still wrong. By the way, uh, the king will eventually, he has John the, the Baptist decapitated. And Herod Antipas will hear Jesus teaching this stuff. And if you keep reading, Herod Antipas will say, whoa, who's this guy? This is like John the Baptist come back from the grave. We got to kill him too. You see the way, like Jesus is commenting on something in their culture. Now, um, okay, take a deep breath. I brought you all the way into the weeds. I'm so sorry, uh, but I felt like we had to. Um, I also recognize that I have not addressed the actual, you did not come in this morning hoping that we talk about Hillel and Shammai, and you did not come in saying, I really hope I figure out Urvat Devar because I've been really concerned. This is not what we actually care about, and I get that, um, but I my point is it's complicated 
to say the Bible clearly says or Jesus clearly says and then to pull a verse out of context and throw it at someone to weaponize that verse runs the risk that we actually do what Jesus was warning us against, that we abolish what Jesus was trying to say in an attempt to quote Jesus faithfully. Um, we, it's complicated. Matthew 19 where they question Jesus about divorce, is a trap. Jesus is responding to a trap in which the Pharisees have set the trap. He does it brilliantly, but understand his audience in Matthew 19. Matthew 5 is about what, how do we interpret the scriptures in a way that doesn't diminish the intent of the scriptures. He's not talking to a victim of abuse. He is not talking to a child of divorce. He is not talking to someone who is trying to keep their marriage alive, but their spouse is checked out. He is affirming the sacredness of marriage. He is affirming that God has a design for what this is to look like. Um, But it's possible that in our attempt to sit with a text like this, that we can misquote it and really hurt people. I... uh, Again, I think we all look at the scriptures through the lens of our own unique pain. And, um, and the question we, we came in with was, like, what do you say to your sister or brother who are in the middle of a divorce um, or are thinking about a divorce? What do you say to your coworker who uh, is somebody who right now feels like they're being neglected by their spouse and is seeking some help? Uh, what do you say to your friend who is feeling the weight of shame uh, in it, some of its religious and orientation? What do you say to them? We can walk the path of the Pharisees um, and ask the question, what does the law permit? And like, what, like, how narrowly do we define this? But, but that would be to treat the law as though it's black and white. And what we know is that oftentimes life is complicated and messy. It is. Um, wouldn't it be great if we had an example? I actually sat with the knowledge side of this and then asking God, like, God, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you talk through this stuff with a room full of people who all come with so much pain? Like, how do we do this? And just feeling the weight of, um, of it all. And I was out for a walk and it clicked. Uh, my prayer was, it would be so nice if there was an example. I don't know how I missed it early on, but wouldn't it be nice if there was an example of how Jesus talked to somebody, not a religious trap, not a debate on how do we interpret scripture, but actually somebody who's gone through the pain of a divorce. And then it dawned on me that there is that example. You know this story if you grew up in the church. It's one of the stories we talk about all the time because it's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Um, Jesus is traveling through Samaria and uh, it's enemy territory in his world. And he's traveling through Samaria and he meets a woman. It's the middle of the day. It's, uh, she's alone and she's getting water. Now immediately you feel the shame in her story because uh, women went to the well together in the mornings, but she's alone, and it's the heat of the day, uh, and, and she's alone. And Jesus has a conversation with this woman. Very quickly, Jesus reveals that he knows her story. She's had, here, I'll read you the passage. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. He's just treating you like guys sometimes treat women. What you've just said is quite true. You've had five divorces, and the guy now has so degraded you that he won't even offer you a marriage. You've had five. Now, were the divorces her fault? We don't know. We have no idea. 
We have no idea what the backstory is. We have no idea. It doesn't tell us. Maybe, maybe. Is this woman lonely, scared, and filled with shame? That we know from the story. The answer is yes. Jesus sits with her. Jesus sees her. And Jesus creates a safe space for her to heal. So safe, in fact, that Jesus, when she leaves, her response back to her community was, I just met a man who knows everything about me. Think about if that was true. I just knew somebody that knows everything about me. You gotta meet him. You gotta meet him. Now, again, is it her fault? The divorce? We don't know. But Jesus sits with her. He sees her. Not for what she's done or what's had happened to her. He sees her. Um, And I think that's what we want deeply, deeply. Um, As a church, we want to be a safe space for people who are hurting, uh, where people can feel seen. Now, does this mean you can't speak hard words to somebody who's, who in your mind feels like you love them and it feels like they're entering into a divorce, they're just throwing it all away, they haven't done the work, they haven't done it? Um, I find a helpful way to think of this is with the question, if the Pharisee's question was, what does the law permit? I think a far more helpful question is, what does love require? What does love require? If you love the person, what does love require? Sometimes I actually do believe love requires us to stand with a couple and say, you gotta keep fighting harder. The amount of times I have, uh, I'm sure many of you, um, we've sat together and we've prayed. Like uh, Sometimes love, I think, requires us to say, I think you're throwing it away. Marriage is sacred and you're, you've gotta keep going. Go see a counselor. Please go see a counselor. Um, I, I remember vividly a conversation with a gentleman, and uh, he was sitting with his spouse, and we were talking, and he said to me, um, but Tim, I think, our, I think ours is dead. Like, it's dead. Our mar- There's no love. There's no passion. Like, it's dead. We're roommates. We don't even fight anymore. It's just dead. And she just sat there and agreed. And we got to pray that the God of resurrection would resurrect their marriage. And right now, their marriage is thriving. It's awesome. Now, I've also been in rooms, as you have, where we've prayed those prayers, and, the, and one of the two spouses at least says, I'm out, I'm done, I'm done. Uh, the language he uses is the language of hardness of hearts. Um, and the simple reality is that sometimes people have hard hearts. It sometimes happens. Um, if, if you're here on the other end of a failed marriage this morning, I hope that this community, I hope we, South Harbor, I hope we, um, so the backside of COVID feels a bit like a reset of many ways. Like, who are we now? Like, we had, like, who, how we functioned together before, but who are we now? I really hope, as a church, we can be a church. I hope this has always been true, but especially now, I hope we can be a church where we can be ourselves um, I hope we can be a church where we can actually come to each other and say, I, I kind of messed up and I need like some help walking through this without throwing shame on each other. I hope we can be that. Um, I hope we can be a church that can mourn together through some of this. And if you're, by the way, if you're in the spot where you're in the middle of it, your marriage is in a hard spot right now, um, I hope we can be a safe space for you. Um, I remember the 
the room out, we were at Red Geranium, and I was sitting with a gentleman, and uh, this guy's amazing. He's a good dude, and he had just gone through a really hard divorce, really hard divorce, and he said to me, um, it feels like a death. I remember exactly how he said it. It feels like a death, only I didn't get a funeral. In fact, I was expected to go to work and pretend as though nothing happened. I hope this church can be a safe space for us to properly grieve, to fight with each other for our marriages, because we're for our marriages in here in this church, but to be a place where we can properly grieve and properly heal and to be a safe space for all people to come in as we are and have the resurrected Christ meet us uh, as we are. I think a far more helpful question is not what does the law or what does the Bible permit, um, but a far better question is what does the law of love, what does the gospel require? Um, ah, would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we, um, we want to be a church. We want to do it right and we want to do it well. And Lord, we recognize that we walk through these doors carrying all sorts of pain. And so Lord, we leverage our prayers for every couple here this morning who's struggling to hold it together. Lord, would your spirit speak to them in this morning? Lord, we, we leverage all of our prayers for anyone who feels shame right now as though everyone, it feels as though everyone's been looking at them the whole time throughout this whole sermon. Lord, I pray, Lord, you would set them free from shame. Please, Jesus. Um, and then, Lord, would you shape us into a church who... Uh, does our best to model your way in your words in our world. Jesus, we love you and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Would you please stand? As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.